This is an MACP podcast. My name is Dan Nichols. Today's podcast is in a collaboration with the Journal of Musculoskeletal Science and Practice. I'm going to bring you today a two-part podcast, and both discussing chordoequina syndrome. The first part is a pre-recorded interview between Chris Mercer and Janine, who's a sufferer of chordoequina syndrome, getting an insight into her story and lived experiences. And the second part will be a reflection based around that interview which will also invite Laura Finucan and Sue Greenhouse onto the mic. So without further delay, I'll pass you over to Chris and Janine to introduce themselves. Uh, my name's Chris Mercer. I'm a consultant physiotherapist uh, specialising in musculoskeletal and uh, spinal conditions. Uh, I have a particular interest in red flags and particularly cord requirement syndrome. And I'm delighted to be sitting here with a lady called Janine, who's going to just introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Janine Holway, and I'm a patient who suffered with cordial quantum syndrome 15 years ago. So I first met Janine about six months ago, mm-hmm. uh, relating to a cordial quina. Um, Janine had seen a video that myself, Sue Greenhouse and Laura Finucane had done for the CSP that was on YouTube. And she decided then that uh, she wanted to talk a bit more about cordial quina. So um, what we thought we'd do was talk through Janine's story, talk through um, how her cordial quina presented, how she was managed and some of the consequences and uh, where she's at now. So start with Janine, just wonder if you could talk us through the first signs and symptoms that you had. Okay, so um, in, sorry, <laughs> in um, 1993 I wanted to buy my first flat in Bury St Edmunds so I got a part-time job on top of my full-time job in a little chef. The very first night in the little chef I came to leave and I walked out on the front door down the disabled slope which was wet. I slipped from the top to the bottom. I got up, I didn't didn't fill in an incident form, didn't report it to anybody. I was quite young in those days. Um, Went home Some five months later, I started limping at work um, and people were observing this limp. I went to the doctors and was given painkillers. Then I went to a chiropractor some 11 months later. The chiropractor said, whatever you did, you did it 11 months ago. And in those days, I kept a diary. I looked at the diary. I established that was my first ever little chef when I fell over. So I've always put it down to that date, um, the date, the first night in the little chef. Um, so the chiropractor gave me some various treatments. I went back to the doctor. The doctor gave me various painkillers, Zaclofenac and various other cocodamol, different painkillers. That went on for several years. Then I met my husband in 1998 and moved to Sussex. So um, um, prior to that, I'd been regular horse riding, regular ballroom dancer, and that had all stopped um, with the um, start of um, sciatica and back pain. So um, 1998, I moved to Sussex. 2002, I had my first child. First child was born, failed one tooth emergency cesarean section. I didn't have any sciatica whilst carrying her. And then the minute I'd had her, the sciatica returned with a vengeance. Um, In 2004, I decided to move a piece of furniture from one side of the room to the other on a laminate floor. I slid the piece of furniture across the floor. Once I'd done that, the pain was so bad, I didn't really know whether to laugh or cry. It was so horrendous. That particular evening, the GP was called out because I'd gone into shock. 
the GP gave me a pethidine injection and told me to attend the GP on Monday, which I did. The GP asked me if I wanted to do a referral to the orthopaedic surgeons. I said, yes, please. That all went through, um, but the pain continued and I was off work. I called in sick. The consultant I worked for contacted me and said... Where was the pain at the time when you had that? It was always sciatica. Was it? Right down my right leg. Or just one leg? Yes. Um, so yeah, my consultant contacted me and said, I want you to come in. I want you to have a caudal um, epidural injection. It was fine. I had that done. I stayed in overnight. I was asked to avoid the next day. I didn't know why. I just wanted to go home with my husband and child. So have you been to the toilet? Yeah. And that was it. I was discharged. No conversation. Okay. I can't remember. Okay. But if I was, I, you know, I didn't know the relevance of it. Okay. Another time. Did Possibly you have... not. No. Okay. And, and did you have any changes in sensation around your genitals or back passages? Not that I not that you remember. I, I mean, I don't know. And the epidural injection. And that How seemed that? to help, and I went home, and and then I stayed off sick for the rest of the week. Um, and then, and then what happened? Two days after the caudal um, injection, um, I wake up, woke up in the morning, and I said to my husband, "Does my stomach look funny to you?" And I was about four months pregnant. The GP was called again. Um, he'd established I was in urinary retention. He sent somebody out to catheterise me. And then various other nighttime staff came out to catheterise me. And then by the end of the week, they'd sent someone out to teach me how to self catheterise. And at the time, did they talk about Cordoquino? No. Did you have any other sensory changes at this point? Um, I could have done, but I don't know. Not that you remember. Not that I remember. No, I wasn't tested for any of them. Um, there was no examination of any of those. Um, what was their explanation of your, your retention? Um, because I'd had the cordial injection into my back. Okay. So yeah, taught how to self-pasteurise, that was totally reasonable. I didn't know the two were related. So yeah, they sent somebody out and I learned how to self-pasteurise. No explanation and I didn't know how long I was going to be having to do that for. So then my consultant called me on the bank holiday Monday, I think. I said, hey, Joni, come back to work because he didn't like me being off sick. When you say your consultant, just to, just to explain that Ginny is a medical secretary um, for one of the consultants here. So, so her consultant was her boss. Yeah. <laughs> my colleague, my buddy. Yeah. So yeah, he contacted me and when he came back to work, um, and I said, Yeah, I'm I'm okay, I'm getting the hang of it. Getting the hang of what? So that I explained what had been going on. He said, Okay, I want to see you. And I was kind of, no, I'm fine. I was changing the bedroom, my mum at home, I'm fine, it's I'll be back. No, I want to see you. So called my husband, I said, I need to go into hospital. They want to see me, they want to do an assessment and some tests. So, okay, take me to hospital. I have all these investigations, including an MRI at that point. And I was later told the MRI showed um, that I had disc herniation and I needed an operation ASAP. I was transferred to Herschel Park that particular evening at about midnight. That's um, a neurosurgical neuro centre. Yep. Um, and I had surgery the next day. I was told if I didn't have the surgery, because I had to consent for it that night, I was told if I didn't have the surgery, I would be paralysed. So that was all a bit frightening. My husband went home designing stair lifts and all sorts of stuff, um, thinking he was going to have a wife that was paralysed. And, uh, you know, we had a two-year-old daughter as well, and he was struggling to look after her. I had surgery the next day. Um, my husband came to see me. And when he touched my feet, it was the first time my feet had been warm for quite a long time. I didn't know that. 
but apparently that was the case. Um, I stayed in the hospital, had to lie flat for five days, I think, at Hurston Park. I was then transferred back here. I received physio for foot and drop. Did anyone mention Cordoquina to you at the time? No. I didn't know it was called Cordoquina until I saw the discharge summary, the handwritten discharge summary. Okay. When, said, when did you see that? I can't remember. Was that from... From, when I, from when I was discharged from here, I think. Okay. So that was, yeah, some three weeks later. And at that point, I mean, I was still high as a kite and painkillers and all sorts of stuff anyway. Yeah. So post-surgery, so post mm -hmm. three weeks post-surgery, you really saw quadriquina mentioned. Yes. And what did that mean to you? Um, I didn't really know what it meant. So I don't know when I started Googling and doing my own research on it, probably when I was a bit more with it and off of painkillers. Yeah. So yeah, did my homework on that. I, from my recollection, I thought, well, that's when the disc herniates onto my spinal column. Yeah. And that's the bit where I'm going to become paralysed. That's the cord of a bit. Okay. That's where that comes from. That's why it was an emergency. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of your... Retention. So yeah. you've been in retention for yeah. a week yeah. or thereabouts. Yeah. Catheterising yourself. Yeah. What happened to that after you after your surgery? Carried on. I was catheterised. Um, the, there was a trial about catheter which failed. Yeah. Um, so I was back using speedy cats, and that went on until I, after I was discharged. Okay. We've spoken before about your kind of experience of learning to mm -hmm. self-catheterise. Yeah. Are you happy to? To, yeah, to so talk that, about that you talked about yeah, yourself so, and husband Steve. That's right, yeah, because I because I was totally numb um, down there. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I knew I kind of needed to pass urine because obviously I felt uncomfortable. So I was in the toilets, we were running the taps, we were um, putting hot water over my tummy. That was supposed to make sure nothing was helping. And I was getting quite desperate. So my husband had to intervene and work out where to put the catheter so that was pretty, no, that was pretty horrendous no. yeah i can imagine no nothing so how was that for for both of you well we had a bit of a sense of humor i guess you know <laughs> and how long did that take to to master that um i yeah I, I suppose i got the hang of it at some point it was always difficult because mm. i just couldn't feel what i was doing i couldn't see what i was doing either and you know, I've just had spinal surgery, so yep. I wasn't very mobile either. Okay. And in terms of help that you got to do that, who, who did that come from? So, I mean, I was taught to self-catheterise prior to my surgery, so that was yeah. a nurse or somebody I don't know who that person was that came to my house. And after that initial thing, did you have any? That was it. That was it. That was it. Just yeah. a one-off, and yeah. then you go. Yeah. There's your problem. You need to order the catheters once a month. Okay. Okay. Lovely. So we had boxes and boxes of catheters. Yeah. And did uh, nobody mention at the time that this might be a, no. an ongoing situation? No. And how's that now? Um, 15 years later. So I, yeah, I got fed up with the catheters and stuff, and there must be a way. Yeah. Um, so eventually I just started to push. Yeah. Um, and sitting in a, in a certain position, I realised I could eventually pass urine. Okay. Not very often. So yeah. if I was, if I'd had, Plenty of tea, water, da 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 da. I, I could do it. Okay. So that's what I did. And how are you managing that now? Is that the same, same as you're managing that? That's now? exactly the same as it was then. And in terms of bowel function? Bowel function. So I was discharged on Novacol, 
Senna, fiber gel, Lachinos, none of them worked. Or if they did, it made me extremely, I don't know, giggly incontinent, I guess. Yep. And I had to come back to work at some point. Yep. So I had to get the hang of something whereby I could come back to work. So none of that helped. Okay. So, so I found my own way. So you found your own way, and I think you find this quite difficult to talk about. Yep. So uh, and describe. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know if you want to no. describe. Okay. So you happy for me <laughs> to? Okay. So. What, what Janine does is to manually evacuate her bowels um, and, uh, and that's ongoing. You've yeah. been doing that since the 15 years. The 15 now. years. Okay. And do you want to talk about? Nobody knew anything? that. Yeah, I mean, no. I established that, how to do that on my own. Um, I was, there was no support, there was no guidance, not try it, nothing, just no help whatsoever. Um, so I don't know what made me do it. I suppose I was desperate. I didn't tell my husband for probably two or three years. There's still very few people that know, including my own parents. Um, so yeah, that's something I continue to do now. And in terms of that sharing with Steve, yeah, uh, you, we've we've spoken before about this. So what was holding you back there? What was the? I mean, there are some obvious things there, but. Um, can you explain how that was for you? Why it was difficult. Why it was difficult and how that... Because I was only 35 years of age. Yep. We still had a young daughter. Um, I didn't want him to think that he was living with someone with all these issues and problems. And, you know, he might find somebody who didn't have all these issues and problems and leave me. And, you know, that would just be awful. Yeah. So I didn't tell him. So that's a pretty just tough time. Yeah, just carried on as normal. And there was no one kind of medically that you'd spoken to no. about that? No, no. Clinical support or anything no. for that? No. I'll come on to your kind of current treatment maybe mm -hmm. a bit later if that's yep. just kind of a current update. But just going back to when, um, around the time when you had your cord quite compression, talking about your sensation around your genitals and the back yep. passage, yep. And vaginal sensation, yep. those sorts of things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I didn't know I was numb. I had no um, examination of that area at all. Okay. So I didn't know it was numb. So when did you realise? Uh, <clears throat> um, I suppose even recently with the um, test that the physios have done in yeah. the last six months, the, the pinprick testing yeah. around that area. You know, that's the first feel, time you've yeah, had that done. Can you feel this? Can you feel that? It's the first time I remember it being done. Yeah. Definitely. Like so after my off, it was so there was so much focus on the foot drop yeah. and nothing on anything no, else. The consequences. No. And obviously, yeah, you were 35. Mm -hmm. um, and how how did that affect your relationship? It was difficult. I mean, we were advised and um, probably not sensible to have another child. So that was hard to. I was only 35. What do we do? Um, I can't make that decision. I, you know, I'd quite like another child. But mm. if I'm going to end up paralysed, self-catheterising right the way through it with even more bowel function problems, I don't know if I can cope with all of that. Yeah. If I, so Steve and I were kind of, well, if it happens, it happens and we'll deal with it. And if it doesn't, then we'll be okay. So we never really decided one way or another. Okay. You were advised against it? Yeah, we were advised against it, yes. And in terms of your 
sexual yeah. relationship. Yeah. You see if your numb around no. genitals and that, yeah. you know, that passage, all that area of yeah. in, how does that affect it's, your relationship? It's been tough. Steve's been, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better husband and understanding, but obviously he had to understand what the problem was yeah. in order to go along with it with me, and I kept it secret for quite a long time. So, uh, yeah. So when did you let him know? Um, so yeah, that was three years when I told him about bowel function. Yeah. Um, I guess he knew in his own way something wasn't the same as it was when we met. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> I do remember a, com a conversation with my boss, bizarrely, who said, well, there are other things you can do. And I guess, thank you for that. Yeah. That's not helpful. That's yeah. not really what I'm talking about. I'm, I was trying to can somebody just help me and tell me what's going on here because I don't understand mm. this I'm quite a few years post-op now why isn't everything back to normal yeah why is why why is the problems there I understand if I've got sciatica still or bad back but yeah. I don't understand all this going on as well the rest of yeah the bowel the yeah, sexual function and bladder yeah I don't get it I don't understand it mm. we spoke <laughs> when we spoke to the students at University of Brighton yes. talked about your inventiveness I guess you know, how, how do you kind of get around that how do you maintain a relationship a physical relationship uh, with, with these kinds of symptoms so a bit of a sense of humor yep yeah um, perseverance talking openly yep um, yeah and maybe having help with that any kind of counseling or no. is this just something that you and Steve have Steve and I, worked through yes. in between yeah yeah we've got a caravan between the two of us that we bought Bizarrely, the year I had my surgery, um, so you know the caravan creates a different environment to home. There isn't all the, yep. the humour because I, I can't sit and cry about it anymore. No, you've done lots of that. I've done lots of that. Yeah, he's going to leave me. He's going to find somebody else. He's going to find someone who's not broken. Yeah, and what you know, what am I going to do then? There's nothing I can do. I can't fix it. No, no, no that's. Uh, it's I, mean, yeah, I suppose it's, it's about the impact it's had you know, yeah. on you and your life. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if you obviously talked very openly there about you know, your relationship with Steve. So in terms of your kind of life in general, mm -hmm. kind of homework, yeah. and your hobbies and those sorts of things, yeah. can you tell us a little, a little bit about that? So yeah, no horse riding, as much as I'd like to get back on horse um, and space as you can if you want to, but I mean if I fell off it would just be horrendous, I know it would. Um, ballroom dancing, I can't ballroom dance because I can't stand on my toes on the right foot. You need to stand on your toes. I'll take the word from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I can't do ballroom or actually <clears throat> dancing anymore. And I, you know, I was gold standard. Yeah, mm. That was um, my passion at the time. Um, so you really tried going back to those things. <laughs> yeah, 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 I've dragged Steve down the dance floor. Okay. I can't do it. You know, it's just hopeless. Just, you know, nothing. Latin, ballroom, mm. it, you need to be on your toes, not flat foot. For me, anyway. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, walking. I can walk a certain distance at a certain pace. Um, Steve's always beside me. Always holding my arm if it's like, you know on level ground. Mm. Um, went back to the GP not that a few years ago. Again, not trying to look for advice and support. You could apply for a blue badge. Great. Now I've got a blue badge to go with everything. Yeah. Can't wait. You know, and at first that was declined. Mm -hmm. That was only um, accepted um, with a second application. 
So yeah, I've got that now. And that does help with stuff like I can open my car door wide and be able to get in the car. Mm. It's not so much to park that outside the shop. It's mm. just give me a bigger mm. parking space so I can open the doors and get in and out. Um, so that's better. And what made you, yeah, this is 15 years, 14, 15 years yeah. post yeah. Um, initial surgery. Mm -hmm. And then you, know, you came and nabbed me last year and said, look, I've seen you. Yeah. What, what made you make that step? Um, for me, I, I guess it, it, sharing it with you means you can share it with others and then hopefully others won't go through the stages I've had to go through without any support or guidance. So, so what would be your, so your hope from doing this? I mean, this is it's fantastic that you're sharing this. Yeah. And um, obviously it's a you know, deeply personal thing to share. Mm -hmm. So I suppose what, what would be your advice for us as clinicians? What yeah. would be your advice to patients in the same position? Yeah. How would you kind of see that looking? Um, so firstly, explain the chordoclimus syndrome or what it actually means and how long you live with that. Yeah. Um, as far as bladder bowel function, you know, being asked to avoid the next day, why is that even relevant? Uh, it's I've got a bad back. What's mm. it got to do with my bladder? Yeah. And, you know, it may be that because I work here, there was an assumption that I knew all about that, because I didn't. Yeah. Um, so explain what what the tests are for and why you're asking the questions, because mm. to me, they weren't relevant. So I hid them. You know, so they were you personal. said before you remembered being asked the questions, mm -hmm. but you remembered not being truthful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bladder function okay? Yeah. Well, it was okay prior yeah. to, you know, moving the furniture, but I yeah. wouldn't say it was the same as the next person yeah. and the bowel function well it was all right you know yeah. what do you what do you mean can you be specific okay. you know it's so about that clarity of question yeah, and then yeah. maybe some context yeah. around yeah. or even afterwards you know what's your bowel function right now yeah it's fine okay mm. Mm, specifically come on yeah ask me what i'm doing because yeah. i'm good i'm not going to tell you unless you push it and the only person did was your team yeah, well, I remember you saying, you know, he's asked me these questions and we're 15 years down the line. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 15 years down the line, I'm now, every time I have a heavy cold, all of these symptoms are worse. Yeah. You know, I'm struggling with more stuff now than I was 15 years ago. Yeah. So it's becoming harder and harder. Yeah. So 15 years, I thought, you know, that's from too long ago. Mm. Um, I mean, five years ago, I helped with an office move and aggravated the scar tissue and spent mm. another four months laying flat. So that was great. And again, I thought, well, the surgery was 10 years ago. Mm. Surely it's fixed, it's mm. done, it's healed. Why have I got to be careful still? Yeah. I soon found out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and for um, for now, kind of next steps, where, where are you at with things now? Um, so I'm having um, skin and bladder physiotherapy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if that will be helpful or not, but yeah. for me, it's worth a go. Yeah. Just to see if it helps. What's your experience been with that? With women's health team? Oh, fabulous. You know, they leave this particular person leaves absolutely no stone unturned. Yeah. She has done every single examination. She's, you know, been in every single orifice I own, and I've never <laughs> had that. Not that I recall anyway. Yeah, yeah. Not in the way she's done it. Can you feel this? Can you feel that? Can you do this? Can you, you know, I've I've not had that in 15 years. I've not had exposure to that. Yeah. It's always been the foot drop, never yeah. anything around. Nothing around you. So has that been a helpful thing oh, in terms of understanding? Yeah. Just to be able to talk about it yeah. and find out 
well, it's it's not me, it's not my imagination. There is something wrong. Yeah. And it's not my fault, it's because of this. Yeah. And I live with the after effects of caudal coronary syndrome. I thought it went away 15 years ago. Yeah. Not realising I was going to live with it. Yeah. And I think that, well, that, that's a common story. Yeah. From, from you know, patients who've been, or people who've been in the same situation. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's, that's one of the issues I think we find is that people don't know that this is something we're going to have to manage. Yeah. Um, so your thoughts overall, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there'll be a big temptation for you to be pretty pissed off with this <laughs> and pretty bitter about it. So I just wondered yeah, whether you, yeah, how you do feel about it. What's your sometimes overall? I'm bitter. Sometimes, you know, my husband feels quite bitter about it. There, you know, we weren't pointed in the right direction for any kind of support or guidance. Mm. Um, so it's difficult. I, you know, I've I've worked for the NHS all my life, mm. so it's it's my home. It's mm. what I believe in. So to you know to say horrible things is horrible. But I but I do live with the failure of what didn't happen. Yeah. You know, the GP coming out and giving me a pepidine injection. Why didn't you send me to A and E? Why didn't I have an MRI sooner? Yeah. I don't know if it would have made the outcome any different. Yeah. And but sometimes I feel bitter about it, and then other times I'm kind of I can still walk. Yeah, so there's a lot I'm grateful for as well. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you wanted to add? Um, I don't think so. Anything else you want to say? Want to ask? No, I'd just you know, like to thank you for being so candid and 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 open with us. Really, I think this is a it's clearly had a big consequence. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really grateful. It's really important for for me and for other health professionals to hear. Yeah, patients voicing this and, and yeah. you know understand the impact of permissions or mm -hmm. yeah to help us improve and uh, and do things better I think yeah so I think having you involved in this mm -hmm. and you know I'm going to involve you more yes yeah. <laughs> um it's fantastic if you're going to ask the questions explain the the reason you're asking yeah don't just say how's your bladder function how's your sexual function yeah. well it's great I've just had spinal surgery it's not really top of yeah. my list We'll give out these give me the small cards to patients with yeah. all those symptoms, and, yeah. and that sort of thing would have been useful to you. Maybe, the time. maybe, yeah. yeah. So, well, I'd say thank you very much again. You're welcome. Pleasure. Thanks for sharing that with us, and okay. um, hopefully this will be useful um, for physios and, and other health professionals. So, thank you very much. You're welcome. To reflect on this interview now we're going to introduce Laura Finucane and Sue Greenhouse to the mic just before I introduce them um, one thing is worth mentioning is Chris alluded to the uh, Cordoquina syndrome cards um, which is a, a useful uh, signpost for patients you can either download those cards on the Cordoquina syndrome warning signs um, to, to signpost patients with a bit more confidence in case that their symptoms change and they can reflect on that. Um, that's easily downloadable from the MACP website and it's been translated, I believe, now into 28 different languages. There's a lot of success stories bouncing around social media with regard to those cards, so I certainly recommend checking them out. Uh, next up, I'd like to introduce Sue Greenhouse and Laura Finucane joining Chris on the mic to reflect on uh, that interview and other cases of Claude Aquinas syndrome. 
for those who aren't familiar, Sue is a fellow of the Child Society of Physiotherapy and also a consultant physiotherapist, uh, widely um, published and researched many aspects of serious pathology of the spine, particularly relating to identifying serious conditions early and, and this work is ongoing. And as a consequence of her work, Sue has a number of publications, including two books, which have both uh, been identified as influencing practice worldwide. Uh, Laura Fanukan, uh, also a fellow of the Child Society of Physiotherapy, uh, she's a specialist interested in serious pathology, in particular metastatic bone disease. In addition to publishing a number of papers on the subject, she's currently leading an international study which looks to develop an evidence-informed clinical reasoning framework for clinicians in the face of possible serious pathology of the spine. So firstly I'd like to um, introduce uh, Sue, Chris and Laura onto the podcast and thank Janine for that um, powerful uh, and honest and such an open interview. Um, I think that, that frames having the narrative of a patient, I think highlights to everyone that it's the person in front of us as opposed to um, thinking of it as, as a process we're going through to get someone into the right um, place at the right time, it, it's more than that, you can see how the, 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 the potential fear from a clinician getting it wrong but also spilling a positive effect, how much of a positive impact we can have on someone's life if, if we get it right. And um, if we'd like to if we kick things off, um, Chris, can, can, we, um, can we talk about bounce ideas with, with Laura and Sue about what we've learned from, um, from Janine's case? Yeah, I think what it, what it highlighted for me was, was really that Janine's story was very similar to stories we've all heard in the past. And this wasn't particularly anything new. Uh, it's very powerful. And you know, Sue's done a lot of work in this area, interviewing patients, so it'll be useful maybe to to hear a bit about Sue's work in the past, how that compares to Janine's experience. Yeah, well, I think it, Janine's experience was really powerful, but reflected lots of the other cases and um, sensitive issues that I've heard that maybe we don't think about. So um, I led a qualitative study in 2012 where we looked at patients' experience of developing quadriquinus syndrome and what were their experiences of developing the typical quadriquina syndrome symptoms that we know about, so bladder, bowel, salal dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, etc. Um, they wanted to tell me very much about the awful pain at first, but then when we got deeper into the conversations, it was actually the awful uh, consequences of the situation, not only with bladder and bowel and sexual dysfunction, but even... Uh, saddle anaesthesia and many of the things that Janine said um, were just echoing what many of the others have said. So the, the implications on day-to-day -day life if quadriquina is diagnosed late and they have these ongoing problems of things like self-catheterisation and just the implications of that on hour by hour throughout the day and if you think about just going out shopping or to the theatre or, or to a restaurant, patients described how that had uh, an effect on how their life had changed and for them and their partner I think Chris that you talked about Janine's partner and very much mm -hmm. this is kind of uh, a change in not only the patient but maybe how the family behaves how the partner has a role I, mean, uh, I don't think you came across in the podcast Janine talked about Steve her husband um, 
but his way of dealing with things uh, that she talked about subsequent, subsequently was him trying to help her, and he was an engineer, mm. uh, a fix-it man. So his his first reaction to her get her diagnosis was to go home and design a stairlift to try and get a stairlift because he thought she was going to be disabled. You know, three years later, when he found out that she was manually manually evacuating her bowels, he was going to design her something to help. <laughs> and she was like, "Oh my God, don't do that, Steve!" But actually, you know, she he was trying to get involved and, and, and be part of that support yeah. uh, and support yeah. Uh, yeah. so I think you know, um, Jillian came and talked to our team last week uh, at the hospital to, to the physios and as she talks about it more she, it's this impact on her life in general that yeah. becomes more and more uh, prevalent I think in her thoughts and, and that impact that long term impact on her mm-hmm. so I think that's probably what came, came out of your work as well it did yeah definitely the the partners were very much involved and acted as a barometer when things were changing in the critical stages. But I think um, what Janine's story also emphasises is what other stories have emphasised that, it, it, as you said when we started, it, if we can identify these patients early, we can make such a massive difference mm-hmm. on the rest of these patients' lives. And I think we know from the literature that um, once delayed diagnosis has occurred and delayed intervention then the treatment could be much stronger by the medical profession we haven't got that right yet Mm -hmm. often they don't return back to the job they were in before but Janine's done really well she's done really well getting back to work and I think but I think one of the tragedies is that she hasn't had any real ongoing support for her bladder and bowel dysfunction uh, and she's only just started having that now. And she's, as she said in the podcast, she's reflecting that the the treatment, even the questioning, or even just the listening from the physio, the women's health, the women's health physio is treating her at the moment has been fantastic in giving her the freedom to talk openly for the first time about all these signs and symptoms that she still has, and how she kind of manages her yeah. uh, <coughs> bowels in a you know, private and a social situation. So I think that access to ongoing care has been uh, difficult for her and I think that probably reflects the situation for most yeah. people with cordial quina. And I think sexual dysfunction is something that is maybe very <coughs> difficult to talk about mm. it's not well understood but um, it's something that they definitely need help with and that can be helped to a degree. Yeah. But I think we don't also think about um, the implications of saddle anaesthesia that maybe Janine didn't talk about. She talked about a lot that was really powerful. But if you imagine just sitting on the chairs that we're on and not being able to feel the chair underneath you, that's mm-hmm. a bit disconcerting. And just a simple function of sitting down. And if you think how critical bladder valve sexual dysfunction is mm-hmm. on top of that. And do you think that's, that's part of that second layer of questioning that we need to develop more uh, as clinicians if we take back to the, the clinician's role, as in a greater understanding of when that when you ask about any any bladder problems and yeah. that's as well. actually I do and identifying when that raises that threshold of concern exactly as opposed yeah. to other things that so may lower it. Someone has a prostate problem, uh, an yeah. over sixty five year old gentleman, and then and then yeah. we're, we're 
that, uh, that threshold changes. Yes. Yes. Managing that. So that that second layer of questioning that, that we need to do is really important. Um, so if you remember from the 2012 work that we did, where the patients who suffered from Caudry-Quarney syndrome developed cards for us to use in clinical practice and to give to other patients. So it was cards developed by patients for patients to open up that conversation in sensitive areas that they didn't know were important, that they maybe had misunderstood or hadn't been communicated well. So um, they wanted explicit language like, is there any problem with erection and ejaculation? Then our job with all of these questions then is to dig deeper. So how long has erection and ejaculation been a problem? 10 years, well, that puts it in a whole different light. So it, it is that second and third layer of questioning that um, that we need to be good at and that we are good at. Is it just going back to the sticking on the card? It, I feel like if that was written by a clinician, it would be a lot broader and not as direct and specific. Yeah, so in my study, all the patients um, felt they were asked, did they have any sexual dysfunction? And every single one of them thought they were being asked, were they sexually active? Mm. And of course, that's not what they were being asked. And uh, they misunderstood things like they felt if you were having trouble passing urine, then if you can't pass urine, uh, it's a problem. So some were saying, so I was really struggling, you know, I couldn't, but I could still pass urine. So I thought, well, that's all right then. So that's why the patients wanted it so specific. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, when it comes to Angeline's um, interview as well, she said she didn't really understand what she what she would have wanted is clarity of questions. Yes. She didn't understand the context. She didn't understand some of the questions. Um, and she, similarly, she remembers them being asked. So I think it's just, I suppose that's about us trying to make sure that clinicians are clear in their communication. Yeah, yeah. how we frame it. Yeah. And also, in, in, in that level of pain that's, that's associated with chronic mm-hmm. well, we want to speak about and move on to the next process to start yeah. managing this pain and get yeah. to the yeah. get to the treatment. So they might not see the value in it if we don't frame and communicate it well. Exactly, yeah. they don't see that it's got any anything to do with the situation that they're with you for. So that's what the patients said. We need to frame the questions as important. So I'm coming to some really sensitively important questions now. I wonder if you can consider your answer because it is really helpful in how we manage your condition. So they do need to understand and Jenny presented that, didn't she? Yes, she did. Could we possibly go through some of those things that might drop your threshold, like you reference with the um, some of the erectile dysfunction that's been going on for 10 years or, or, yeah. or medication, some things that listeners could um, incorporate into their clinical practice straight away and, and for that second line of questioning? Um, so I commonly, well, with each area I would ask how long have you had it? Mm-hmm. And um, something to explore is have they had a scan of the lumbar spine whilst they've had these symptoms? And you would be surprised how many actually have. You know, I felt exactly like this 12 months ago and um, I had a scan then. So that's, that's really important to identify. Or they might have had a scan, even with these symptoms that they currently present with, there's been no gap. And so you know that that's already been investigated. And um, drilling down, has anything else changed? 
you know, has the medication changed and that sort of thing. Although we've got to consider what they're telling us, we can't just assume it's the pregabalin, for instance, understanding if there's anything specific that's changed. But certainly, length of time can reassure you if it's been some time. Investigations with the symptoms that they have now that are the right investigations, so i.e. an MRI scan on the lumbar spine, would again be reassuring if it was these same symptoms. I think that length of time of symptoms is is important to you in when the kind of timing of onset, but in but a lot of these patients aren't black and white, it's quite unclear, so there's some useful guidance that uh, will be coming out hopefully fairly shortly from the National Low Back Pain Pathway Clinical Network that examines some of that work uh, and some of those kind of conundrums really for, for clinicians. So um, for patients who've had signs and symptoms of you know, urinary frequency, urinary dysfunction for more than a month, uh, the suggestion is going to be that those patients don't need same-day scanning but do need urgent scanning within a week. I think that that framework will be helpful and the, and the uh, same clinical network uh, is also helping to clarify the issue around bilateral sciatic or bilateral radicular pain. So there's some helpful guidance coming out around whether uh, the radicular pain is associated with neurological deficit of uh, motor power of less than three at one level then they require an urgent scan. Um, if that ridiculous pain associated with core required then obviously it would be same day scan. So there is a bit more clarity coming out in the in the national frameworks. And uh, Laura's in, in leading a project, uh, an international project that we're, we're all involved in. So that again might help to put some flesh on the bones if you like. So yeah. if Laura can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah sure. So so we as you say we're involved in this project trying to look at developing an evidence in fra- um, informed clinical reason framework around spinal pathologies particularly, so that would be cordoquina, fracture, infection and malignancy. Because uh, we know know that the research around red flags is really, it's quite limited, um, particularly around diagnostic accuracy. And and actually some of the clinicians are, you know, some of the decisions they're making are on the back of those diagnostic accuracy, which isn't really helpful um, because it's not in the context of a patient's story or presentation. So it's quite limited. So the, the idea of the project is to bring some of that, certainly not ignore the research, but use the research along with some expert opinion to develop this framework, which will be a clinical reasoning framework. And it'll be, it'll be about strong clinical reasoning um, and, and good, clear questioning, uh, which will make part of that framework to, to really make people think more clearly about what, what they're doing in terms of when they're, when they're faced with those patients. What stage is that work at? Yeah, so, so at the moment we're, uh, we're in phase two, so we've just gone out to the experts um, and we're just reviewing that information and sort of trying to make some sense of that. Um, so we'll sort of synthesise that, we'll use the research that we, we've done, so we've done some um, systematic reviews and we'll put all of that together. Uh, so we're, we're not just relying on that quantitative sort of level of detail, we're looking at that qualitative uh, experience that we've got that will to really help to kind of knit those things together. So, you know, hopefully we'll come up with, with a fairly um, robust and useful framework. So hopefully we'll get through phase two by October and we'll have a draft framework to send out to uh, a peer review, essentially, across the world, just to have a sense check of whether that's a useful piece of work. 
And where does that go next? What is the <coughs> phase three? What's so, so, so phase three is us actually uh, drawing it together, so actually developing the framework itself. Phase four will, will go out to the peer review, and then five is, is again, just that should be the, the ultimate uh, framework, which hopefully will be done by Melbourne 2020, in our hopefully. Excellent. We'll deliver it then, so we'll see. Super, and if I can trace it back to um, what you were saying there, Chris, with the with these guidelines for the for the four weeks, you referenced um, any bladder uh, or urology problems in the last four weeks. Was that is that? That's um, in association with the onset of their their back pain yeah. or neck pain symptoms. And so, as Sue was talking about earlier, that you know, tying tying together the onset symptoms. And that would cover sensation. Um, so that's yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, where does that. Where where's that being developed from that? So that's a, that's a development of the national low back pain, no, national low back and radicular pain pathway, um, which is a national document that's that's been yeah, widely endorsed by uh, Nice etc. So this is a, a group of multidisciplinary professionals, so physios, first contact practitioners, GPs, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and everyone involved in that spinal pathway uh, from a clinical point of view. So it's an agreed pathway, nationally agreed pathway. So this is about you know, nuances to the, that pathway and developing that pathway to, to make it more useful for clinicians so that we can help patients like Janine in the future. Yeah, absolutely, because that gives you a little bit more to hang the hat on what's such a grey area on this, this mm. four-week window gives, gives the clinician a bit more confidence of, of <laughs> there are obviously challenges around that when you've got people just on yeah. the right threshold yeah. of like, four weeks and they're... <coughs> Four weeks and one day, and they, they fall outside that catchment. But I assume you, the, 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 that's where your clinical reasoning skills come yeah. in there, just yeah. as it would yeah. before this. And, and it's all about, you know, even if they're sort of on that, that brink, you, you're still, if you decide to send them an urgent scan, then you're going to safety net them. You know, we're yeah. going to make sure that we, we keep hold of them really in terms of what to look out for. Fantastic. Oh, if we, if you, uh, we can finish up there, I'd like to thank you guys for your, your time, and particularly Janine for um, for her. Indeed. podcast at the beginning, yeah. much appreciative yeah. to share that and, and guide us and the clinicians and uh, learn from it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Thank you. I hope listeners enjoyed this two-part podcast today. It's certainly driven home for me the importance of explaining the reasoning behind questions and also the importance of correctly um, signposting uh, patients who are at risk. So I'd like to uh, take the opportunity to thank Laura, Sue and Chris in particular, Janine. For those who want to hear more from Chris, uh, head over to uh, the Physio Matters podcast. Chris uh, earlier this year did a podcast which I highly recommend. Um, also, Laura, Chris uh, and Sue be um, teaching on a upcoming study day which you can book uh, via the MACP website on Cordoquina syndrome, uh, which will be running at King's College London on the 12th of December, so head over to the website. Mm-hmm.